Welcome to Stratford Lutheran's Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex, and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series, and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon. first lesson for today is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 26 verses 1 through 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid, us, laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. This is the word, world of, word of the Lord. The responsive reading is taken from Psalm 91, 1 through 13. Please follow along and read as indicated in your bulletin. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God is 
For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The second lesson is taken from Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus answered him, 
It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of our Lord. Experience in their wilderness 
And we will see how that is parallel to what Jesus does. If we would say, as Paul notes, that Jesus is the last Adam, we can begin with the garden. And we see this essentially even as Luke draws to a close his genealogy at the end of chapter 3, where he finishes with Adam. He says, and the son of Adam. Because Jesus is the ultimate Adam. In fact, all of humanity is summed up in Christ. So he would be essentially Adam version 2.0. The upgraded, the best, the premium. There's nothing better than this Jesus. And this is how he's presented to us in this gospel. And this is how he's presented to us by Paul and other apostles. That he was the second Adam. He was the one that was fulfilled all of the things that Israel and all of the people should have done. See, where Israel was faithless, Jesus is faithful. And when Israel was disobedient, Jesus was obedient. And so in the summary of all of it, we can say that Jesus is the new Israel. We can drive all of this towards everything in Christ. So to further illustrate the depths of this scripture, we see Jesus as being the new Israel, God's son. And we see this in a few different pieces of the text. If we go to Exodus chapter 4, we see this. Then he will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If we move forward in time to Hosea, the 11th chapter, we see this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so right there, these are just two verses from the Old Testament, and I can give you one more that illustrate that Israel is now fulfilled in Christ. And we get into a whole lot of deeper discussions on eschatology and how Israel will be redeemed, but the fulfillment of what they were designed to do is completed in Christ. They were supposed to be obedient to the law, and they were un they were disobedient. They were unfaithful. They neglected the Old Testament law. And this is all the way through the time of even with Christ and encountering the Pharisees. We see, again, additional parallels in this Gospel of Luke with how Jesus is now the ultimate fulfillment of the unfaithfulness of Israel, where he will be faithful in completing these temptations. In Luke, we see at the baptism of Jesus, this is what God says, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Again, connections back to the text from Exodus, connections back to Hosea. That you are my son, with whom I am pleased. Jesus is the new Israel. All of that completes in one man. And as we come into the temptation of the desert again, we are immediately, or should be, as Luke indicates, we should be reminded of the time Israel spent in the desert. Now, Luke doesn't explicitly tell us hey, as I'm writing this gospel, make sure you go back and read Deuteronomy 6 through 8 because it'll help you. That is actually inherited into knowing this. Like in the first century, they were expected to know these things. 
And this is why we call for these sermons to reflect back on all of the texts and corresponding to help illustrate and demonstrate the fullness of Scripture. When Jesus responds in this in his text to Satan, when he says it is written, he is taking specific words from Deuteronomy, chapter 6 to 8. This is the time that Israel spends in the desert. And so there's a lot of parallel between that text and the time Jesus spends in the desert. In fact, each account that Jesus refers to in these Two, in these couple chapters in the three temptations, is a very specific time when Israel was being challenged with temptation. Israel faced mostly idolatry, the, the, the movement away from a God in one day. And we can illustrate that by saying if we remember when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, what were the Israelites there doing? Making a golden calf. So they could worship this calf and say that this is God. They missed the point. And so Israel is tempted by idolatry. And they are tempted throughout this time. And this is where Jesus is calling back to as he faces Satan. We can even say there's additional parallels to not just the temptation of Jesus, because see, we have, we have to rewind just a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, and we see that we have a genealogy that wraps up chapter 3, and then immediately after that, we have the baptism of Jesus. And this is important to understand, because with the baptism of Jesus, immediately following, he enters the death. And this is Again, a parallel to when Israel crosses the Red Sea. Because after they cross the Red Sea, they experience time in the desert. And so while Israel is baptized in the Red Sea, Christ is baptized in the Jordan River. When Israel faces time of testing the wilderness, Christ's time in the desert will follow baptism. Again, paralleling the text and showing and demonstrating to us that this isn't just written awful men. These writers in the New Testament weren't just writing because they thought it sounded good. They are going back to the Old Testament and digging out all of these little pieces of truth for us and demonstrating that in this we now have the ultimate completion of mankind. We have the ultimate Israel, the ultimate Adam in Jesus Christ. And so we will demonstrate all of these parallels throughout our Lenten season. As Luke opens this text, we are immediately reminded of this connection of the baptism because he says he was full of the Holy Spirit and returned from Jordan. And then he enters into the wilderness. Language that is very similar, again, to the time the Israelites were led. We want to do a word dive and look at language, the Hebrew word, in the Old Testament, is the same Greek word in the New Testament. The words that are being led refer to the same use of time. So Luke is heavily drawing upon this text from Deuteronomy. And if we were to read chapters 6 through 8, we would understand the entire scope of what is going on in the desert. And to do so, we would get a full depth of this text in Luke. 
but for time's sake, we will not dig into those. But Luke continues to draw upon this concept of typology. He's constantly looking back to the Old Testament and demonstrating that this is the fullness of that. Adam was a type of Jesus. The Israelites crossing the Red Jordan, the Red Sea is the type of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan. Israel being led in for 40 years in the desert is a type of Christ's time and temptation. Now, I've preached this particular sermon a number of times in the past. In fact, we even touched on it last Lent season. And we drew into the three temptations very heavily. And we looked in, in really in-depth view of the three times that Satan comes to Jesus. And if I were to just carry on with that, I would take this and we would expound it and I would demonstrate to you how Jesus overcame those. And how we, too, can overcome the same temptation. But as I came to this text this year, I was challenged. I was driven to do something a little different. And that is the thing to build upon this next season is to take the text that we will experience through Gospel of Luke and see where Luke is calling out the Old Testament for us. We will demonstrate how there is this connectivity and how this isn't just something that Luke wrote, but there is connection and fullness and completeness demonstrated for us. I just can't stress enough how connected and intertwined the Old Testament and the New Testament are. Yes, reading history or reading the books of the Old Testament can be a daunting task. There's challenging text in there. There is dry text in there. Boring text. And I say boring in this framework that history for some people just might not be what you enjoy reading. You might like to read little snippets of stories, but you want to see kind of the character being drawn out and the climax of the story being given. But to read and see the genealogies and all of that that goes into the building of the nation of Israel can be daunting. But here's the truth. If we don't read the New Text, the New Testament through the lens of the old, we will miss so much that. We will, we will essentially surrender all of the Old Testament books if we don't read the New Testament through that line. And so as Jesus faces these temptations in our text today, we make this observation. The tactics that Satan has had have not changed. Not from the garden, not to the time that Jesus faces him in the desert, and not even to our life. See, Satan targeted Adam with questioning God's word. Did God really say See, he, when he comes to Jesus in the text, he doesn't go after any sort of malicious deed, or he doesn't challenge Jesus to complete an evil action like steal, or murder, or commit adultery. But the temptation that he brings to Christ focuses on fearing, loving, and trusting God above all things. This draws us to remember the first commandment, to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And to complete that, that we shall have no other gods before him. All of these temptations that Satan brings are selfishly focused. Ones that would satisfy Jesus in the immediate time frame. 
but would leave humanity devastated if he fell. But here's an interesting note that anytime we read of a miracle of Christ in the New Testament, it's not that Jesus is doing something to fulfill a need of his. It is one that he's doing to demonstrate his deity to the crowds of people. Whether it's the turning water to wine, the wedding of Canaan, or, or the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus is selflessly giving to all of those around him. And so these temptations really right off the bat kind of just fly out fall short. Because we know that that isn't going to be the ministry of Jesus. He has not at all taken any sort of selfish move forward. And of course, as he withstands these temptations, Jesus doesn't rely on his divine power. He doesn't rely on his knowledge for the most part. What he does rely is on God's word. His own word. One that he wrote. One that he has memorized. One that is written throughout his entire being. He is the word, as John tells us in John 1. 1. And so this is where he turns to, is to what he has already said. Again, we can go back and, and demonstrate Christ being present in the Old Testament. We did so when we concluded our kind of Genesis, where we've seen all of these elements of Christ present, either physically when he wrestled with Jacob, or as he came to Abraham and spoke to him. And we will see soon when he comes as a burning bush to Moses, Jesus' presence in the Old Testament. And so these words are not foreign to him. These are his words. And so the first temptation brings us to a time in the desert where the Israelites are hungry and the Lord feeds them. But Moses goes on to say this, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This first temptation draws us to see that Jesus being tempted to fulfill his hunger. But he only points to what is really written, that man does not live by bread alone. Yes, bread can sustain us. It can fill our stomachs, but that fades over time. The word of the Lord, though, sustains us all through eternity. The second temptation, we see Satan offers all of these things to Jesus. And this is something very similar to what Satan offered to Adam and Eve. See, he goes to Adam and Eve and he says, you can be like God. If you just eat that fruit, you will know good and evil. But see, they were already made in the image of God. They were the only beings created that had a perfect and right communion with God. They could walk the gardens and talk to God. And yet they wanted to be like God. And so they fell into temptation. And this is the same or similar tactic that Satan is using on Jesus. He says, if you want all of these things, all of these kingdoms, all you have to do is bow to me. We read Job in the first chapter. We see how Job is going to and fro on earth, and he comes into the throne of God. And God demonstrates to him his ultimate authority. But we see in this time that Satan does have a little bit of power. We see that Satan has essentially allotted power 
only by the confines of what God allows him to do. He goes to Job and he tests Job and he essentially removes his children, his livestock, his wife, all of these things, and straightens Job, but doesn't kill Job. See, Satan doesn't have that power. But Satan does have the power to tempt us, to lead us astray. But the withstanding of Job is that he finally turns and speaks to God, and God answers him. And in that, we see that as Satan is attempting to take what is not really rightfully his and give it to Jesus, which is already rightfully his, Read Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make all nations your possession. Daniel 7, 14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So Jesus already has this authority. Jesus already has all of the nations under his rule. And so what Satan is offering isn't really his to offer. But yet he comes continuously and tries to deceive the hearer. As we heard just a few moments ago, Psalm 91 being read to us as we did the responsive reading, Satan comes in his third temptation and he quotes this psalm. Satan brings Jesus to the edge of the temple, and really, if we were to read this in depth, some commentaries would place us in Jerusalem. But really, the temple, the location of it, is not so important, but it's the fact that he is in Jerusalem that is important. See, if we were to read all the temptations again, we would see that he's being positioned at very strategic points that Satan is trying to seize and this is where he comes to Jerusalem, because as we will see in later the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus says that in Jerusalem is a place where all the prophets come to die. And so this was the ending point of where Jesus' life will take him. This is where Jesus sets his face to in his ministry, and the conclusion of it will be his death in Jerusalem. And so Satan tries to spear that head a little bit takes him to Jerusalem and says, cast yourself off. least some angels come and rescue you. See, in fact, he uh, excludes various passages from Psalm 91. See, what he does is he tries to take little fragments of the verse and twist it to manipulate the hearer. What he fails to realize is what is in the next verse. The psalm goes on to mention that the servant, him, will be trampled under the feet of Jesus. See, he excludes that because he doesn't want Jesus to know that he knows that. He does so purposefully. And he goes on to try and twist the text. But Jesus again quotes the Old Testament and says that knowledge of God the Father will not abandon him through his ministry. This is the fulfillment of all the Israel and all the temptations that Jesus Christ, the true knowledge, the true wisdom, will continue to fulfill our needs today. So as these three temptations are recorded, Jesus uses scripture continuously to overcome them. And of course, this isn't even the beginning of an exhaustive study on this text. But as I come to a close, I might 
but I can't help but come to this parallel. See, as Jesus was in the desert, we too face temptation. While we may not be physically in a desert fasting for 40 days, we experience desert-like conditions in our lives. We experience times where we are lost, where we are uncertain of what tomorrow may bring, where the pain of life is so real and vivid we don't know if we can wake up in the morning. And see, that temptation continuously comes and pounds on the door of the Christian. You constantly have the devil whispering in your ear, did God really say? The question then comes, how often do you stumble and fall with that temptation? How many have you given into? Really, I could spend here the next 45 minutes and give you an endless list of temptations that may come to the Christian. But as I said early on, each of one of us is individually given temptations that experience us us personally. But they all get rooted into this one question. Did God really say? And if you've forgotten that, if you forget what God really says, you become vulnerable to sin. And this is why a church is so vital. This is why coming together collectively as a body of Christ is so important because you will be reminded that even though you stumbled last night, even though you stumbled in the car on the way here, even though you sinned, Christ forgives you. Because he overcame the temptations in the desert, you too can overcome temptation. But when you stumble, Christ still forgives you. And so that's the affirmation of what God said. That what is, he does demonstrate for us is really true in the completeness and fullness of Christ. So when Satan says, did God really say? We can respond and say, it is written. And we can read back to the text and see continuously over and over where we have this promise from God that he will not forsake us, he will not abandon us, he will not leave us out to dry. And on that final day, when our time comes and Christ returns, though we may have already turned to dust, we will experience this glorious resurrection. We will experience eternity with Christ because his word is true. Because what he said in the Gospels, what he said in the Old Testament, holds weight. It is true. There is no other truth that exceeds this. So when Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica of the promise of resurrection, that is a promise we receive as well. That when Christ returns, if we have died and turned to ash, that we too will experience the glorious resurrection. And this exceeds all of the things in this temporal life that Christ came and died for us because of his obedience to the Father. We have comfort that his words are true. And this is that Christ forgives you of all of your sins.